The idea for this recorded conversation between me and Luke and Sean, two nurse practitioners at Valley Children's Hospital in Madeira, California, came last fall when I Zoom bombed their team meeting to notify their palliative care team's medical director, Dr. David Sine, that he had been awarded the Courageous Provider Award. I met Sean and Luke along with the rest of the team and was immediately struck that they were two male nurse practitioners. In my travels, this is not typical, so I wanted to hear their stories. They are quite a duo. Sean talks fast, really fast, and Luke talks quietly. They clearly feed off each other's commitment. In this conversation, recorded this past January, we discussed their decision to go into nursing, what drew them to then become advanced practice nurses in pediatric palliative care, how they sit with families, how they sustain themselves, and because they're in California, how concurrent care has made such a difference for families in their region. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Courageous Parents Network has the deep conviction that parents and providers of seriously ill children have the same goal, to give children the best possible chances to live their best possible lives. In all that we do, CPN strives to help these parents and providers mutually understand each other, communicate more effectively, and make decisions together. In so doing, CPN strives to improve the course of care, both given and received. On behalf of all of us at Courageous Parents Network, I want to thank you, Luke and Sean, for making the time to talk with me about your journey to becoming pediatric palliative care clinicians. Both of you, I think, are advanced practice nurses. Is that correct? Yep. And you have your own respective journeys, but you also came out, I think, both of you out of oncology, and I don't think that's irrelevant. How about, let's just begin by each of you introducing yourselves, your name, your title, where you work, and then I will ask you how you came to do this work. I'm Sean Hunt. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner working in uh, hospice and palliative care. currently reside in Clovis, California. I work at Valley Children's Hospital. I also work for Heinz Hospice. My name is Luke Newberg. I am also a pediatric a nurse practitioner working at Valley Children's in the Central Valley outside of Fresno, California. Originally from the Midwest that went to school in Minnesota and had some time in Wisconsin as well practicing as a nurse prior to moving out to California and getting my graduate degree at Azusa Pacific in pediatrics. Initially Working in the pediatric ICU, I was a new grad. Very quickly realized that not all kids get to go home and perhaps not all kids get to go home the way maybe they came in or, or we were hoping for. That environment really kind of pushed me to think about this new population of patients in the ICU setting. And that's what really motivated me to want to go back to grad school to work as an advanced practice nurse, really seeing that through palliative care, I felt that my skills could be further focused primarily on these, these kids in this specific patient population. What connected you to, oh, some of these children don't get to go home and yeah. palliative care? 
Sure. For me, it was a sense of kind of the elephant in the room. Some programs, thankfully, are improving and talking about palliative care and incorporating it into their curriculum. But for me, it was kind of foreign. So for me to kind of hear that there was a team dedicated to focusing on quality of life, on advanced care planning, on decision making, on pain and symptom management, it really was something that I connected to. It was something that I saw such a need for it. And I also saw at the same time, not everyone was comfortable around it or wanted to really get near it or talk about the hard things. Meeting the palliative care team back at Children's in Wisconsin, getting to know them, seeing the work they do, shadowing them, following them. That's what really said, you know what, I want to pursue advanced practice for this specific reason of being a pediatric palliative care nurse practitioner. And Sean, what about you? I had spent about a decade on a pediatric oncology hematology unit and seen lots of kids have the experience of a bad death and a family to experience that as well. And I think it was, again, like Luke said, the elephant in the room, that, that uncomfortableness around we're not able to achieve the goal of cure. So then what are the next phase of this child's life? You know, they're going to eventually die at some point, but how can we use supportive services, medications, and conversations around supporting what that will look like. I got to experience through the lens of Susan Willoughby, who was our palliative care nurse at the time here at the hospital, I really shed light on these are things that are the hard conversations that need to be had early, and we weren't having them. And so I saw a lot of her frustrations, a frustration of the family, but also the providers just have that uncomfortableness of like, I don't want to talk about these things, but we have to talk about it. Susan died suddenly and it really made us void this chasm in the hospital where the administration was like, oh my gosh, we have no one for palliative care. And all the providers were like, what are we supposed to do? And so it really was hard seeing we had kids that were still going to die, who were still in those phases and not getting support because we lost this department of one person. And so I talked to my wife about it and prayed for a hard two weeks it was like, Lord, I, I am still early in my career. I've got a long time to work, probably at least 20 to 30 years. Is palliative care where you want me to go? And so uh, after speaking to the Lord and just really felt my heart, I asked my manager, I said, can I add on a day a week to continue palliative care just to pick up what she had started? And so I did that for about eight to 10 months. We ended up hiring a full-time nurse, Lynette Zimmerman, who we work with. She's still in her role, but it really set the tone for this is why you're doing it. This really gave that pivotal focus on, you would be able to help be a voice for them and advocate for these patients and be empowered. You are now the one who can help make those recommendations. You're the one who can write for those things and make sure they're comfortable, they're getting what they need. I am now able to do this for you. I have this advanced skill set and I have this knowledge base and, and life experience to hopefully help guide you in those conversations as to parents, to teenagers, to young families. Let me work on symptom medications um, that I can make sure you are comfortable and really take care of those primary concerns of pain and what parents worry about. Dive into those deeper conversations of advanced care planning, code status, you know, what are your wishes and things like that too. I'm struck listening to you, Sean, by how complete the package seems of what you can offer as a nurse practitioner or advanced practice nurse. Do you feel that you are at an advantage? Because it may be that as a nurse, 
practitioner, it's more likely that you will be at the bedside for some of these conversations that are core to palliative care than a physician might be. We are a boots-on-the-ground type of workforce. We want to be present. We want to be visible to staff and providers so that we can have those curbside conversations. Hey, this needs to happen. We're going to have a care conference in an hour. Can you guys be there? Family's ready to withdraw care. Can you guys show up? And so we will always be available to meet those needs. What has been the most striking thing for you about this work? The most important, powerful, memorable thing you would say about what it means to be a palliative care provider? I can say just generalized within the palliative care world. I can think of multiple mentors, men and women throughout my nursing career early on and so where I am today that I would say the palliative care community is very open. I've always found it to be a great support, always seeking to make you better as a professional based upon others' experiences. And so one of the things that I think is very helpful in being new in this role is the ability to have a good team personally here in this position with Sean and Dr. Sign, our collaborating physician, and even Lynette as our nurse coordinator, and all the experience that they bring to the table. And so I think sometimes it's it's helpful to know you don't have to reinvent the wheel. If there's a tried and true kind of method or, or approach to conversations that you've seen in real time work, just simply kind of continuing those habits or those practices is really helpful. And so I would say one kind of big takeaway I've learned within this first year of pediatric palliative care in this role is getting to know your families and getting to know their stories, getting to know your the kids that you work with, mm-hmm. realizing that as you get to know them, as you get to know what they're hopeful for, as you get to know what they're afraid of, as you get to know some of these bigger pieces, it really can point to what are the drivers of decision-making in what is important to this child and what is important to this family. And in a weird way, being comfortable knowing that it is not going to be clearly delineated that all families and all patients think one certain way. It can be uncomfortable because it's so gray and, and you don't know which is going to be the best. But if you come at it from the perspective of who are they and, and what is important to them? I'm amazed the truth that can be found in asking simple questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so much beauty in that sort of intimacy and that sort of care. It's also hard work, not just because all medical care is hard, but these are conversations about life and death with the innocent and their parents who are typically very loaded with emotion. How do you, as two, at least compared to me, very young individuals, take care of yourselves while holding so much of other people's difficulty? I enjoy doing things that are outside of a hospital environment just so that I can have that disconnect. Binging Netflix and things like that, working out, going outside and golfing. But yeah, just loving all my family and can enjoy them and just hug them harder on days when I'm like, yeah, they can tell like it's been a hard day had dad i'm like yeah it's been a rough day but i'm so thankful i have you guys and just enjoy them thank you and how about you luke i think something i'm continuing to learn and it doesn't always come easy or natural but not always taking situations or, or perhaps families emotions personally whether that's anger or frustration or just deep grief and sadness 
I certainly think there is a level of, of empathizing. I think there's a level of, of doing what we can to connect, but at the same time, realizing that sometimes some of that frustration is going to be perhaps even turned on you as a provider. And if, if every interaction is, is one where it's met with, why are you here? We don't like you. This is not helpful. You're not helping me. That's going to be a long, long career. Yeah. And so I think my team has been very good in helping me refocus some of those emotions is not necessarily personal always finding ways to improve and, and to do better. I think for us, there's a sense of, of being available for each other, being available to talk about what we're feeling and any questions, are a good question, any emotion that you're, you're experiencing is okay to share. And so I think that's a huge benefit to have that open dialogue with the team. But then kind of like what Sean was saying, I think even finding a a a delineation or a boundary of I have to be able to kind of separate some of this day in and day out dialogue and conversations when I go home and and when I carry on life outside of the hospital setting and sometimes that can be difficult when they kind of seem to seep into one another Mm -hmm. so it's a work in progress but certainly having my wife to be able to talk to about some of these things and for us to be able to lean on our faith and, and to know that the weight of the world, the weight of some of these patients and outcomes is not on my shoulder. And I don't have to hang on to that allows us to be able to do this work in a way that if I didn't have that source of strength outside of myself and the Lord, I I don't, I don't think I would be doing this work. And and not to say that everyone finds that same source or that fine um, area of strength, but I certainly can say for myself that that is the reason why I, I can continue to do what I do. One of the things I heard you touch upon there, I sort of understand is moral distress when you might see something that feels like a disconnect between what's happening with the child or for the child and what you feel would be in the best interest. And perhaps that's because of what the family is deciding or what other members of the team may be recommending. How do you handle that moral distress? What what do you do and do you have strategies? We've been able to get much support in utilizing resources that are much bigger and greater than just ourselves. And for some hospitals that can be achieved through like an ethics committee. I think something as a new provider I've learned you know, oftentimes we say that we will support a decision no matter which decision it is. And I think sometimes what, what if that's a decision though, that you don't support? Can I, can I really say, you know, say that I will support any decision that, that you will come to, because there have been a few situations that families were, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I want to say okay with suffering, but they were, they were allowing suffering to persist with no timeline attached to that or kind of structured guardrails or goals. And so being able to bring in an extra set of eyes that can be very objective and can give some some short-term goals, some long-term goals, some recommendations, we found that to be helpful. And I think that's something that the more these committees are exercised, the more their insight is sought we have this medical technology, but are we stewarding it well? 
I love that. And I really, really appreciate your bringing up the availability of external resources to lean upon because you're not doing this work alone. It's so complicated and there's no right or wrong to any of this. So what are all the resources that we can bring in to help either make a decision or feel okay about what's going on here or move it along so that we get to a place where we feel okay. How often is it that you have had parents come back to you and say, I am regretting a decision that I have made? The reason I ask that is it is my impression, not based on any quantitative rigorous science, that as human beings, in order to live with ourselves, especially as parents who are the agents of our child's well-being, in order to survive, we seek to make peace with the decisions we have made. I have not often encountered a parent who admits to regretting a decision that they have made. What is your perspective on decisional regret with parents? Not just your perspective, your experience with that. I can say I can count on one hand the number of parents who have actually verbalized that they regretted or felt misled by the team as far as making a decision. And three that I can think of off the top of my head right now are about tracheostomies and just kind of what was being sold uh, from a surgeon, from a, from a pulmonologist standpoint was like, well, this is going to make things better. Trying to be as involved as we could with that care and that help of making those decisions. I had one parent I can be able to think of who, as it came out of surgery, said, this is not what I asked for. And went, we did a really bad job. We did, the medical system failed this parent on how did we get to this point that they consented and had a child go through a painful surgery to put in an artificial airway that we now, how do we make a decision to remove that or can we? And just what that, that decision spacing looked like. But the mom was like, this is not what I asked for. And she's like, I, I, I would not have done this. I'm like, okay, so clearly more conversations, more dialogue of as we got to this point should have happened, never happened, or, you know, maybe what she had in her mind's eye and what we were trying to explain, just we're not congruent. So we really try to use models. We'll use pictures and, and just see what have they researched on their own? Have they met anybody who has one of these? I'm kind of what that experience looks like too, to really understand what's driving those decisions. So most families, and I can think of one example specifically where they won't say they regret that decision. They'll just say, I wish we would have gotten where we hoped to be. We never achieved that goal of like a full recovery or getting to do a certain activity. I think of a family with a mom after two years of therapy and interventions and all these things after the child had a severe brain injury, um, she actually was able to verbalize that we never got to achieve the full potential of their, of their dream. Not what the child could do, but what she was hoping for him to do. That's why I see most of them kind of fall short of their hopes and dreams. That distinction between disappointment and regret, they're two very different things and it's an important distinction. One of the things that really got me excited about this conversation with the two of you, palliative care is dominated by women generally. So let's talk about that for a minute. What would you say actually to male nurses about this work so that we can bring more men like you into the field of pediatric palliative care. We need more men in this field. How would you articulate that? When you kind of share about your journey and 
in learning about palliative care and practicing it as a generalist, kind of as a nurse, and then now pursuing it as a specialty, I think it's beginning first with why do you do what you do? And why do you love what you do? And what about this role is needed and is special? Sharing that both with men and with women, you know, just anyone we can get to talk to about palliative care, I feel like I share that with specifically to men. Maybe Sean can even more speak to this, but I can say not to necessarily put people in a box, but typically in our experience working with dads, working with other men, wanting to kind of be fixers, right? And so being able to come into these conversations to really kind of be able to connect with fathers in a way, whether you also are a father like Sean, or also being able to say, we may not be able to fix this in the traditional sense that that we would, would always hope for. Being able to kind of speak into those conversations for fathers, I feel has been helpful that perhaps maybe some of our female colleagues are speaking at different angles that we can't bring to the table. (laughs) Being able to put time and energy on things maybe even outside of a child's condition or finding that need to keep working and to kind of affirm that that's okay and being able to say that, yes, we want you to be a part of this care plan as much as is mom maybe, but not being at the bedside and being at work is a good thing. And we support that. And, and we want you to know that as we're sharing a lot of this information with mom, we, we want to be sharing it to you as well and, and to get your thoughts and to get your, your feelings. That's a struggle. If I can't be here to fix the situation, I'd rather be at work where I know I can do something or help with the kids or get the house clean and just have mom also like respect and understand like that's just where he needs to be right now. And it's okay. Once he needs to be here for you, you know, in emotional, physical state, he needs to be doing what he does too. And that's what we do best. Definitely unique being a male in palliative care. I think taking a step back uh, and a question that I'll, I'll kind of post to Luke too is, what got you into nursing in the first place? I think it's kind of helped drive a lot of why we are men in nursing too. It's weird. I actually recently answered a Facebook Nurse Rocks questionnaire. Well, the question was posed is, what physical attribute would you change about yourself as a nurse? And I was like, that's a good question. And the way I answered, I said to be a female. Because as a male nurse, nursing student in the early 2000s, being harassed, like, why aren't you a doctor? You know, just that being framed a lot. And that was really hard to kind of swallow. Like, well, I'm not prideful that I'm not a doctor. I'm okay being a nurse. I'm working with kids. Like, why are you with, you work with kids? You don't have any. There was a lot of struggles of these stigmas I really fought through in that time frame, And I was like, this is what I've been called to do. I want to lay on hands. I'm a physical person. That's my love language is, is being helpful and, and physical to, to hold and touch people and do things for them in a positive, genuine way. And so to break through that men can be nurses make me very powerful as far as our voice our physical attributes the fact that i'm taller than most of my coworkers at the same point i can lift more actually created a culture of safety in my unit where women were not as intimidated because there was a man present too and so i've encouraged men i'm like if you're interested in healthcare, unless you really 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 got to be a doctor be a nurse i said between the pay the work lifestyle the balance of it all too you can have a, an amazing lifelong career make good money but enjoy what you do and not have to slug through 20 years of like debt med school and all the rest to like get through to that point too like you can do it pretty quick i really try to encourage men and i've had people we work with coworkers who brought their sons over and like hey talk to me about being a male nurse and i'm like yeah it's, it was the best decision i was led to make 
I was just sharing with Sean the fact that the challenges that he faced or dealt with, thankfully, I can say with kind of the tincture of time, I didn't maybe face as many of those roadblocks or stigma. Maybe now that you talk of it, maybe some comments here or there, or thankfully it wasn't like the norm or every day coming into work. We kind of dealt with that. And so I do really think that is progress per se with some of these initiatives to continue to utilize men in nursing. I can speak for myself too, having been a patient in the hospital, admitted, having that view of being the one looking out of bed up to the providers and not the the one looking at the patient, being the patient. No way or shape or form ever saying, I know exactly what you're going through, but being able in some way to say, I have an idea. You know, I know what it's like to have control taken away, Mm -hmm. the fear of the unknown, pain or symptoms that come with with various illnesses. And so for me, that really spoke to even wanting to go back into being nurses and to care for others as those who cared for me. What training have you had, both explicit and through experience, to help build up your cultural competency to interface with children and families from different backgrounds other than your own? Growing up in the Central Valley, we're a very conservative, mostly white, but we also have a fairly large Hispanic population, but also we have a bolstering Laotian group here too. And so growing up in Central California, the thing you did is you could do ag and drive like off-road. And so I drove tractor, I did walnut shaking, I worked at a cricket ranch in summers. And so most of the guys I worked with were Spanish speaker only. They were seasonal workers who came across. So I had to start to learn. I didn't learn good Spanish, (laughs) but I learned Spanish pretty quickly. And so it made me want to learn proper Spanish. So I took it in classes. The church I grew up in, me and among service, we, we also had two and kids in my neighborhood. And so I just being where I lived at helped me to grow and to understand diversity of having African-Americans in my, in my neighborhood, Hispanics, Laotians, and then the Caucasians as well, asking lots of questions. You know, people would invite, hey, do you want to come over for a party? So I'm like, absolutely. I'd love to learn more about your culture. Always saying yes. It's been a fun new challenge. I have a family who right now they're from Israel and they're very traditional on that. And so whenever I go to visit them at their house, I was like, do you want to stay for our breakfast? Which is like at 11 o'clock in the morning and have traditional coffee. I'm like, absolutely. You know, I'm going to certainly try it because again, I want to be respectful to them. I want to enjoy the culture they want to offer. If you are genuine, no matter what culture you come from, what language you speak, they're going to read that. Mm -hmm. And so they, that is a love language that is universal. And so just being honest and transparent and say, I'm here to help. How can I do that? has been the best language to cross all those boundaries. Growing up in Wisconsin, much more Scandinavian in German. I think for me, one of the benefits to being in more metropolitan cities, whether that's Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Los Angeles, California, in practicing in these places where you may not be the majority is super humbling and really important to get a different perspective and really am in complete uh, agreement with Sean and just trying new things. I oftentimes say you'd be shocked what you might enjoy if you just try it, you know, when it comes to getting to know people. I would say outside of like the hospital setting, getting to know the international student community through some outreach opportunities with our church as well. And so I think both formal and informal training in the hospitals that I've worked at and then just lived experiences and liking to try new things and meet new people and just always be willing to learn has helped kind of bridge some of those 
and I would say like on a very specific application, getting interpreter services involved in patient discussions has also been, I think, much appreciated by families when it comes to very detailed conversations or where social pleasantries of Spanish kind of end and I need need more help using our resources within the hospital to, to get someone that speaks fluently can be really helpful. And I know sometimes for providers, it takes more time and energy and can disrupt workflow. But when it comes to important discussions, it's really worth it. You guys are lucky to be operating in a vibrant concurrent care system. It's amazing. Even you look at the data, that was my graduate project was to look at the outcomes because being a liaison from Valley Children's to the Heinz team in Fresno, I could hear no admissions, no ER visits, no hospitalizations, you know, for each of these kids. I'm like, okay, we keep hearing that same story, but what's actual data? What's the numbers look like? And so I was able to complete a study looking at just Heinz hospice alone. And I want to look at a 24-month cycle, 12 months before they got into the, enrolled in the program to see how often were they in the hospital for ER visits, hospitalizations, and what was the cost? Because the majority of the patients here are Medi-Cal or Medicaid funded. And so again, for taxpayer purposes and legislators, we want to see what's that numbers look like. And so I looked at the 12 months that they were in that program, look at the decreases and for the impact of concurrent care. And it was dramatic. We were able to decrease the ER visits by 75%. Half of the kids never went back to the ER. And we reduced hospitalization by 64%. Half never got admitted again. But the billing too. So the group of 25 kids I was able to vet in that study collectively billed $4.51 million to Medi-Cal before they got enrolled. And then the year they were in, it dropped down to $500,000. And then the length of stay also was dramatic. It dropped it from basically three years collectively spent in the hospital down to six months. And so it really showed at a a robust program for a low payer cost was highly effective to improve their quality, but also improve their quantitative care as well, despite them being ICU level or acute care needs, even at home with parents who likely begin in Central Valley. We've got a large migrant group that works ag. It's, they're not um, highly educated, but they're highly capable people. And so it's really great to partner with them to keep their special needs children at home, living well and doing well too. Yeah, it was great to put the numbers behind the work that was being done and shown this this has got to continue to survive. And so that's going to continue to reinforce and work with our groups to say, how do we continue to grow so we can add more kids into these programs? Because we know it's successful. We know this has great impact. How can we get more on? The problems were limited by nurses. And so when you talk about the home care nurses along the way, it's getting new people to be the unicorn of, you know, pediatric palliative care hospice at home. Like, well, that sounds really scary. I'm like, Yes, but also you've got support, but you have a certain level of autonomy with that too. And and when you're trying to pitch, you know, pediatric hospice, like, oh, kids dying every day. I'm like, well, kids don't die every day. You know, this is not the adult world. Kids are resilient. They're amazing at what we think that they may not be able to do. And they, they tell us otherwise, like they write in their own book. <laughs> they don't follow the traditional adult path of, you know, illness, progression, death. They're very unique in that, in that sense. So we just try to, again, take that stride when we come here in the hospital too, like, I don't crystal ball. These kids are going to tell us what they can do and what they need. And we just need to follow their, follow their lead. These kids are going to tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. I think it's more so, are we actively listening? We can rationalize and say, well, I know what's best for my kid, but they're telling you through their smiles or their sadness or their hospitalizations, like things are starting to uptick. You know, we're on this slippery slope and how do we help to 
maybe decrease this need of coming to the hospital for not getting them better, but how we enjoy them at home or trying to dispel or debunk the thoughts that parents have. Like I think of a parent I met where they, they had their child has muscular dystrophy and they got told that yeah, when the child's diagnosed at age two, well, they're going to make it to 19. So I want to meet this child at 15 and have lots of comorbidities and health issues and really see like things are not going to go well for very long. Sit down with dad and saying, I hear you say 19 is the goal because that's what you were told. But what I'm seeing is a 15 year old who's very frustrated that he can't eat, can't play games, which he enjoys because of his limitations of the disease and what his care needs are. And so really encourage a robust conversation with that 15 year old who's got a voice who needs to be heard of his body, his life, and what that means for him and what he's willing to lose out on knowing he's still not going to survive very long. And so having still a conversation, the dad finally was like, okay, we're going to go home. We're going home with concurrent care, live about six more weeks, but enjoy that time versus suffering for potentially four plus more years without doing these higher level interventions that are not going to get better, but it's going to keep him alive. Luke, when you walk into a room and introduce yourself, not your name, but what you do and why you're there. How do you describe yourself, your role? Do you use the word palliative care? And if you do, how do you contextualize it? And if you don't, what do you say? Sure. We do use the word palliative care. We really kind of wanted to reappropriate that word as to what palliative care is. And so we simply share that we were consulted as an extra layer of support right now that can be looking at the discharge picture of getting some more care in the home and and really taking time to describe concurrent care and describe the resources that are provided through the agencies that we partner with. Sometimes it's really looking at just kind of focusing on pain and symptom management various issues with difficulty sleeping, difficulty eating, nausea, vomiting, just a plethora of symptoms, really looking at what are some things we can do a little better. And so I think it's like a short-term goal initially. And then certainly we oftentimes say that while your care team changes, you get a new nurse each shift, you get a new provider perhaps each week as far as a primary, our team doesn't change. And so while Sean and I kind of mirror our schedules, someone from our team will be able to come in to see you and to follow and to be of help. We will always kind of be available if there's just seems to be a disconnect with the plan of care or goals of care or parents understanding, getting care conferences aligned, working with decision-making at times, code status. But usually we just want to get to know them the first interaction. Tell us your story. What are you hopeful for? What are you afraid of? And you'd be amazed where conversations can go from there. Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.